Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. Thanks for joining me here on the Storytelling with Data podcast. So I was encountering this situation this morning, and actually anyone who has kids or has spent time with kids can probably relate to this, where you get the same question over and over and over and over. And so this was happening this morning. I was getting a little bit frustrated. But then I stepped back and I was realizing, hey, wait, I used to do this exact same thing right? When you really want something and you're maybe not getting the answer that you're hoping for, sometimes we ask again and again and again in hopes that the answer will change, right? That we'll be eventually able to to get the answer that we want. Um, And there's one particular uh, interaction that I can recall with my parents. And it sounded something like this. Hey, mom, can I get a kitten? No. Okay, that was not the answer I was looking for. Oh, I have an idea. Hey, Dad, could I please get a cat? Go ask your mother. Okay, that didn't work. Wait a bit, try again. Hey, Mom, could I please have a kitten? Mm, Maybe when you're older. Okay, well, that wasn't a direct no. Wait a little bit, try one more time. Hey, Mom, can I please have a cat? We'll see. Ah, and if you're like me, that sounded pretty much like the green light to go for it. And so I bought a kitten for $5 at a garage sale and took it home to see if my mom would make me take it back. She didn't. I got to keep it. I bring this up because I've observed this same phenomenon when I teach, where workshop participants will ask the same question multiple times and from different angles, perhaps in hopes that the answer will change. It sometimes seems that people would prefer to have strict rules for visualizing and communicating with data. You should always do this, or you should never do that. It turns out, though, that it's usually more nuanced than that. And actually, the answer to many questions raised in this space is nearly always the same. It depends. So today, we're going to discuss 10 common questions raised related to visualizing and telling stories with data that can be answered by those same two words, it depends, and talk about exactly what it depends on and the things you should be taking into account, the considerations you should be making, and the critical thinking process that will position you for success when communicating with data. Question one, what type of graph should I use? Well... It depends. For me, the thing it depends on first and foremost is what do we want to allow our audience to do with the data that we show them? And oftentimes this means iterating and looking at the data one way and looking at it another way to try to find that magical, the one that'll help us create that magical aha moment of understanding that graphs done well can do. Now, when it comes to use cases for different types of graphs, uh, you know, if you're showing data over time, oftentimes a line graph will work well. Or if you have data that is categorical, a bar chart may be a good choice. 
And actually, there are a lot of different types of bar charts. And the two I use most common are vertical bar chart and horizontal bar chart. And for me, the most common reason I switch between a vertical and a horizontal is simply to get some more real estate if I have long category names, to be able to write those in a way that's going to be accessible to our audience. And one thing to keep in mind when you're figuring out which view of the data is going to work best for your given situation, for your given audience, is recognize that the view that you used to create that moment of understanding for yourself as part of the analysis is not necessarily the same view that's going to help you create that moment of understanding in your audience. And so oftentimes, this means giving yourself time and looking at different views of the data to try to find the one that's going to work best for your data, for your situation, for what you want your audience to see and to know. And if you're unsure, there's an easy way to test this, which is create your visual and hand it to a friend or colleague and have them talk you through their thought process what they pay attention to, what questions they have, what observations they make. All of these can be really useful for figuring out whether the visual you've created is serving its intended purpose. Or if it isn't, give you pointers on where to concentrate your iterations. So what type of graph should I use? The one that's going to be easiest for your audience to see what you want to show. Let's talk though about a specific type of graph and a question related to it. Should I use a pie chart? Well, it depends. That might be a surprising answer uh, from me as I've had talks before called death to pie charts uh, and uh, have a well-documented disdain, uh, you could say, for this type of graph. Does that mean you never should use one? No. So I don't typically use them because in cases where I would maybe reach for a pie, I'll often reach for something else instead. But I've softened my views on pies over the years for sure. And, you know, when you title a talk called Death to Pie Charts, sometimes it's just fun to be a little provocative. Uh, but part of my softening over time was actually some new studies that came out in 2016 by Robert Kosara and Drew Scow that actually disproved some of the things that had previously been held as common knowledge on how people read pies uh, and what sort of tasks are easier or more difficult with pies compared to some other graph types. And what they showed is actually that a pie chart is probably the best visual for showing that one piece of the whole is really small or another piece of the whole is really big. For me, the challenge is they break down pretty quickly if you want to say much more nuanced than that. Because as soon as the segments approach similarity of size, it becomes really hard for us to wrap our head around how to compare those values. So our eyes just aren't great at measuring areas, which is what we're asking our audience to do when we show them data in a pie. Now, does that mean we should never use a pie chart? No, not necessarily. Actually, John Schwabish had a good post from a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about a case where he said, you know what, I'm going to throw caution to the wind and I normally maybe wouldn't use a pie chart, but I'm going to use a pie chart in this given situation. And the situation was one where he was considering his audience, he was considering his data and what he wanted to show and had looked into some alternates and realized, actually, a pie chart works for what I need here. 
It's not a scary graph type, right? I'm not going to put off my audience by using it. And for the message I need to get across, it does a fine job of that. So make sure I link to these studies and posts that I'm mentioning here in the show notes. Um, but definitely recommend uh, giving them a read. Question number three, should I keep the axis on my graph or label my data directly with data labels? It depends. So this is a common decision point anytime you're visualizing data of do I preserve the axis, right, the line and the tick marks and the numbers that go with those, or do I label my data directly? And now for me, the decision point or the consideration you want to be making here is what level of specificity does your audience need to have with the data you're going to show? If the specific numeric values are important, then you may want to consider labeling the data directly. And if you're labeling all your data directly, you don't need the axis anymore because it becomes redundant at that point. On the other hand, if you'd rather your audience focus on the shape of the data or relationships between uh, different aspects of the data that you're showing, then you don't want to clutter your graph with the data labels and instead can consider preserving the axis. So your audience has that there to get a sense of general magnitudes, but it's not cluttering up your graph directly. Question number four. Does my axis always have to start at zero? It depends. So the, there is a rule uh, here, which is that with bar charts, yes, the axis must start at zero. Because with bars, what our eyes are really doing are comparing the endpoints of the bars which means it's important to have the context of the full bar there in order to make that an accurate visual comparison. And we see uh, issues uh, with this where people chop off the bars at something other than zero. And what this does is invalidate the visual comparison. And actually, I'll use this as an opportunity to mention uh, Alberto Cairo has been doing uh, sort of a tour uh, of the states uh, and probably other locations as well. Uh, visual trumpery, he's calling it. Uh, and it's a talk on misleading data and visualizations. And he did this a couple of weeks ago at the Urban Institute, uh, where John Schwabish hosted him. I'll make sure I link to that in the show notes in case you want to check that out, because I actually recorded and have posted that, um, which is something to keep in mind. I think both as we are creating data visualizations and as well to be smart consumers of data visualizations. Now, it comes back to axis starting at zero. So with bars, you cannot. Um, I've actually never heard of a, a good exception to this rule. Uh, but with lines and with scatter plots, you actually can get away with starting your axis at something other than zero and doing this sort of chopping and zooming. And that's because if we're looking at lines or points, we're focusing actually more on the positions of those points in space, uh, if we consider a scatter plot, or if we're thinking of a line graph, the slopes and the relative slopes that connect those points, uh, or of the lines that connect those points. And mathematically, as we zoom, the relative positions and points remain constant. Um, now, we still want to take care, though, and take context into account and make sure we're not over-zooming and making minor changes or differences appear like a really big thing. 
but sometimes minor changes or differences are a really big thing. Right? If we think of the efficacy of a drug, for example, basis points of difference can mean lives saved. Uh, and now, depending on our audience, we may want to think about turning that into lives saved, right? something a little bit more tangible. But when you do need to show more minor changes or differences where those are meaningful uh, and need to be able to zoom in to be able to see that, using a line graph will be a way to get there. And actually, I've made a few different posts on the blog over time uh, related to this that I'll link to in the show notes as well. Question number five. What should I do when I have missing or incomplete data? How upfront should I be with my audience about that? It depends. And really here, it depends on how critical that missing or incomplete data is to your overall message, right? Do you know enough that generally, directionally, things are still going to be what you're saying? Or are there really important things where you're making an assumption and if that assumption turns out to be false, it actually changes the outcome of what you're going to be showing? Because I would say in the former case where, okay, maybe your data is not complete, but you have enough of it there and you can say generally what's going on. And even if you get the rest of that data, it's not likely to change the course of what you're recommending or what you're showing. Then I think that can be more footnote sort of material where it's important still to note, but it doesn't need to be the first thing up front that you show your audience. On the other hand, if you're making some assumptions or if knowing this incomplete data could change the outcome of what you're showing or change the thing that you are recommending or pushing for, then you need to be more upfront so that your audience can take this into account as they're interpreting what you're showing. Um, now, when it comes to how explicitly and where and how we caveat our data, uh, you just want to be you want to be thoughtful about this um, because over caveating when you don't need to can actually derail the conversation. Uh, I can think back to an example where I was at Google and was getting ready to present some data to uh, senior leadership on the cost of attrition, right? And there were so many assumptions that went into this. Uh, you know, how long was a seat vacant? How how much did we spend on recruiting activities? Uh, you know, what was the the value lost over the the time of the vacant seat? And when I went in, it ended up being you know, if we picture a slide half the slide at the top was taken up with all of these assumptions. And then the graph ended up actually being this sort of tiny thing, almost an afterthought uh, on the bottom of the slide. And the exec who I was presenting to took one look at this and said, you actually don't even need to talk to me today because I don't believe anything you're going to show me when you caveat that much. And it's one of those things thinking back, yeah, I never should have gone in with that anyway. Um, and now whether that means um, not showing all of your caveats up front or if it means changing the way you talk about it. Um, and these things all have implications on how our audience takes in the data that we're going to show them and how much they believe it or don't believe it. 
had an interesting conversation actually a few weeks ago with a client. Um, this was a pharmaceutical company, and they were doing endnotes and footnotes throughout their slides in a couple of different ways. Uh, they'd have numerical footnotes that they were using in some cases, where you know they have a slide title that would make some sort of claim, and then have a footnote, uh, you know, a, a number at the end of it, and then at the bottom of the page it would have the number and the um, data source or the article uh, that the claim was coming from. There were other cases where they use an asterisk. And we had an interesting conversation about how people feel when they see a numerical reference versus an asterisk. And the conversation was mainly uh, people were feeling when it's a numerical citation that it feels like, oh, there's some more data to back this up. And I can look for details and see the article or see where I need to look for more data. Whereas the asterisk seem to carry the connotation of saying, you know, but or however, um, basically making the claim or the statement that was being made, uh, having it feel less true or, or less complete in some way. And so we didn't come up with a solution of, of what we should do there. But it was interesting to be thoughtful about how these different methods of uh, linking to additional information or caveats how this, um, how it changes, uh, how people read what we're showing them uh, and, and how they take that in. So I think when it comes to cases where you have missing or incomplete data, you know, coming back to the question, you really want to think about how important is that going to be for your audience and then how upfront you need to be about that. And actually, Nathan Yao had a great post on this recently uh, called Visualizing Incomplete and Missing Data, where he showed a handful of different options to potentially use in different scenarios where you need to show that there is incomplete or missing data, but are struggling with how to do so. And actually, when I was looking up uh, that reference on his site, uh, I saw he has another post um, that I'm in a dog ear, uh, but I'm, I'll link here as well, uh, called Visualizing the Uncertainty in Data. Um, that's sure to also be a good one. Question number six, where should I put text on a graph? Now, it depends, uh, like always, right? And for me, Typically, the best place to put text on a graph is as close as you can to the data it describes, so long as it doesn't obscure or interfere with the ability to read the data. What we want to think about when we put text in a graph or put text together with a visual is how do we make it clear when our audience reads the text, where should they look in the visual for supporting evidence, you know, if there is supporting evidence there that they should be looking for, and vice versa. When they see the graph, where should they be looking in the text for words that help describe that or lend more context to it? So proximity is one way that we can show that, right? By putting the text close to the data it's describing. Similarity is another way to make that visual tie, where I can think of highlighting certain aspects of the data or certain points in the data with a given color, and then can use that same color in the text that describes that component of the data. So that when my audience reads the text, they see the color and associate that with the same color in the graph, or vice versa. 
Um, there was actually a post recently uh, that Elizabeth here at Storytelling with Data did on the blog a few weeks ago, where uh, she was going through a makeover, and it ended up being a scatter plot um, that was divided into four quadrants, and uh, there were points within each of those quadrants, and she'd chosen in her final view to label that data directly. And we actually got feedback uh, through the blog comments uh, from a couple people saying, oh, that actually, you know, for me, that looks a little cluttered and impacts the ability to really see the data and understand where to look in the data. So in that case, we actually ended up doing an alternate view uh, where we use similarity of color in the way that I just described to tie the text to the data and vice versa. And actually, when it comes to where to put text, for a view of a ton of different examples, check out the recent Storytelling with Data Challenge uh, recap, 88 Annotated Line Graphs. I'll be sure to link to this in the show notes. But here you'll see 88 different annotated line graphs and a ton of different ideas in terms of where and how to link your text to your visuals. So where should I put text on a graph? Well... It depends, right? When you can, put it close to the data that it describes. Uh, unless that's going to clutter the graph or make the data hard to read. And then you can use similarity or um, connection, right? Actually drawing a physical line from the data to the text or vice versa can also be uh, something to think about here. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll discuss an interesting exercise that Neil Richards undertook to help answer the question, how much text should you include in a data visualization? Hi, folks. Randy here. You might remember me from episode three of the Storytelling with Data podcast, and I'm here to share some exciting news. Cole has just released an audible version of her best-selling book, Storytelling with Data. I was lucky to be able to be there at the legendary Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, California, where she recorded it making sure this would be a book on data visualization that you really can listen to. Hear her read her book to you, describing the visuals and teaching the lessons in the way she wants you to hear it. If you're like me and enjoy listening to podcasts and audiobooks in the car or while out for a run, then you're really going to enjoy this. Whether it's the first time you're getting to know storytelling with data or you have a worn copy of the book on your shelf, you need to check out Audible or Amazon today. Welcome back. So when we left off, we were discussing where we should put text in a graph. Uh, question number seven is how much text should I put uh, in my graph or with my data visualization? Now, it depends, <laughs> uh, but in general, my view is that there's some text that has to be there. Every graph needs a title, every axis needs a title. Exceptions to this will be rare. And if you title directly, it means your audience doesn't have to use their brain power to try to figure out what they're looking at or make assumptions about what they're looking at. Now, beyond that, for me, when we talk about telling a story with data, uh, we also want to have text that helps answer the so what, right? Not only what the data is, but why do you want your audience looking at it? What do you want them to take away from it? And so I advocate use of a takeaway title for that, uh, where you say right in the slide title, or if it's the visual in, in another form, you know, in the graph title, potentially, what do you want your audience to know? which primes them so that by the time they're looking at the data, they already know what to be looking for. And actually, related to how much text, Neil Richards, uh, who has the blog questionsindataviz.com, uh, recently posted uh, 
an interesting challenge, uh, and he summarized it up in a post called How Much Labeling Should You Include in a Visualization? And he created this graph, and it, uh, you know, imagine you've got, I don't know, 20 lines, there are probably more than this, uh, where each of them start at the left, and there's a dot, and then in the middle, there's a dot or two, and then on the right, there's a dot, and you have these lines progressing sort of downwards and to the right. And I'll, I'll link to this so you'll be able to look at what I'm talking about in case this is hard to visualize. Uh, and it didn't have any labels on it, any titles, any words at all. It was simply the data. And he posted this on Twitter and said, what do you think we're looking at? And invited people to guess. And there's some interesting uh, back and forth, right? People were saying, okay, it's the beginning of something. It's the end of something. I'm not sure what. Uh, and I'm not going to give away what it is. Uh, you can take a look at his post where he goes through this and see if you can figure out what it is that you're looking at. Uh, but it was interesting. Somebody did end up uh, answering it correctly. Uh, but she actually said she wouldn't have gotten there without reading what some of the others, uh, some of the guesses and, and other thought process that people had had gone through. And so really, this was to try to understand how much text do we need to make our data accessible? And one of the funny things that happens is when we when we visualize data, right, we know what we're looking at. And so it becomes so obvious to us that labels and titles almost seem redundant sometimes. Um, but this was a good exercise showing uh, just that thing. Because once you actually know what the data is that Neil's showing, it seems really obvious. And you, you almost, you can't unknow that anymore. Um, but until you know what it's showing, you have no clue what you're looking at. And at best, you're making an assumption. And so it was just a good uh, exercise and illustration that we need text with our data visualization to make that data accessible, make it understandable, make it so your audience knows what you want them to see and what they're looking at. And now how much text, though, is going to depend. And it's going to depend on how you're presenting the information, right? Are you there to talk your audience through it? In which case, you can tell them what they're looking at on the different axes and may not have to title and label everything directly. Or is it something that's being sent around? Your audience has to consume it on their own. In which case, I'd really recommend having those words on there to make your data accessible. Another recent post by Neil that you may want to check out is one called Is White Space Always Your Friend? Where he actually uh, blogs about his recent submission to the Storytelling with Data Challenge, uh, where he looks at the name Neil over time uh, in kind of a cool way and does some nice annotating there as well uh, and addresses this question of how much white space is enough, how much is too much, and so forth. Question number eight is one that comes up frequently in my workshops, which is how much is too much, right? How much can I put on a slide or how many graphs can I put on a slide? This is a question that comes up a lot. And the answer there as well is it depends. And actually it depends on maybe some of the same things that we just talked about when it comes to how much text. So I think for me, the thing it depends on most is how are you going to be presenting these materials? Are you there live to talk your audience through it? Or are you sending something around that they are meant to consume on their own? So ideally, these two scenarios call for two totally different work products. 
sparse slides when you're there in person because you're there. You can lend more context. You can fill in any gaps or answer questions. You can talk about what your audience is looking at and why. Versus a denser, almost report-like document for when you're not there to talk through it because then the document has to stand on its own, which means you need all the words that you would say in a spoken presentation written down physically on the page. Now, rarely do we actually end up doing two different uh, work products here, though. Rather, we end up with this one combined uh, slidement, right? Part presentation deck, part report, not exactly meeting the needs of either scenario. Usually, it's way too dense to put up on the big screen and sometimes not dense enough for the version that gets sent around without you there to support it. Um, now, some strategies that you can employ when that's the case, and coming back to this question of how much is too much, one strategy is to keep your slides sparse um, so you can cycle through uh, you know, and focus on one or a couple aspects of your data at a time, always indicating to your audience where they should be looking in what you're showing, which you can do either through your actual gesturing or by highlighting certain things within the data through color or bold or other pre-attentive attributes. And then you can end with a final fully annotated slide or two that would be for the version that gets sent around so that your audience who is consuming it on their own has those words physically written on the page that help take them through a similar story as to what you'd be talking your audience through in a live setting. Because when you have something on your computer in front of you or you print it out on a piece of paper, we are open to higher density of information when that's the case, meaning we can get away with having more content without visually overwhelming our audience. And now we still want to be thoughtful and create visual hierarchy and push some things to the background and try to draw attention to the important things, but you can get away with more in uh, something that folks are consuming on their own than a live presentation where you're going to put something on the big screen because less already looks like more when you put it on the big screen and make it big. So I'll often show this as a strategy where we have sparse slides and maybe use animation of things coming in or going out or being pushed to the background so that I can direct my audience's attention to where I want them to look as I'm setting up the data and talking through the data and the story, and then can have a denser version that pulls that all back together. So in a live presentation, I'd only ever have a graph on a slide, um, never more than that simultaneously, unless it's that final version where we've already gone through the pieces and now we can pull them back together in a way that's not going to feel visually overwhelming to our audience because they've already seen the big picture uh, piece by piece. And then when it comes to you know how many graphs can I put on a slide, it still depends. It depends how, how many words and what sort of structure do you need to put around that so it makes sense to your audience. And I find I'll often end up with a structure where I have uh, two sides of the slide. And this again is for that final annotated version that can be denser uh, when we're sending it around to our audience, uh, where I'll have some text, uh, a title and some text and a graph on the left and a similar setup on the right. It's a nice way of if you have things that actually can be beneficial to see all at once or are connected 
connected to each other. Now, there are cases where you can get more on a slide than that. Um, you just want to be aware because the challenge in having a page that feels dense or feels complicated is that some portion of your audience may decide that's going to take too long for me to figure out what's going on and will instead turn their attention to the next thing. And so it's one of those things it comes back to of how much time, how much patience do you have on the part of your audience? How are you going to be going through the material? And then trying to figure out, therefore, how much do I put on the slide, right? How much is too much? And that's going to look different in different scenarios. Question number nine, how much time should I allow? And this is an interesting question. And clearly the answer here is also it depends. Um, but it's interesting because we often don't allow much time for this part of the process. If I step back and think about the typical analytical process, I maybe start off with a question or a hypothesis. Then I gather the data and I clean the data and I analyze the data. And at that point, we'll often throw it in a graph, maybe outline some findings and stop there. It's interesting to me because that is the only part of the process that our audience ever sees. So my view is it deserves at least as much time and attention as all of those other steps. Now, how much time you should take though, how much time you should allow, it depends. It depends how important is the data, how important is the thing that you are communicating. If it's less critical, right, a quick hit, and it's not a huge decision or recommendation that you're making, yeah, then you probably don't need to spend as much time. However, if it is something important, right, depending on your audience, depending on the scenario, then you want to take time on this step because whether it should or not, the amount of time and attention to detail that you spend on the communication piece has connotation for the amount of time and level of detail that you paid through all the other steps of the analytical process. So you want the piece that your audience sees to say good things about uh, you know, all of the things that happened behind the scenes that they don't see directly. And now my general advice is it's always going to take more time than you think it should take. So always carve out more time than you think you're going to need. Um, and get feedback when you can uh, to try to figure out when you're done. And actually, that brings me to our final question in the series today. How do I know when I'm done? It depends. Uh, and it depends on some of the same things uh, that we just touched on in terms of how much time should be allowed. Uh, you know, how do I know when I'm done? Well, if it's something that's not critical, not super important, then you can do a quick and dirty and that may be good enough. On the other hand, if there is uh, an important audience or it's an important discussion that you're setting up or it's critical that you get folks to make a decision on something or that they arrive at a certain conclusion, then you want to spend some more time. And it, my view is that there is an incredible amount of value to be gained from work that's already being done uh, if we can more effectively communicate that work. Um, so how do I know when I'm done? Uh, one way to test it is to solicit feedback from somebody who doesn't have any context or has very little context and show them your work, talk them through your work, get their questions and observations and discussions. And that can all 
oftentimes be an enlightening sort of process that helps us see things in a way through our audience's eyes. Um, because as you get close to your work, which inevitably happens, it becomes really hard to take a step back and see things through our audience's eyes. And so soliciting a fresh perspective, uh, someone else to help you do that who's less close to the work can be really useful for figuring out whether what you're doing is working, whether you are defining things in a way that makes sense, whether your audience is seeing the same things or coming to the same conclusions that you are or that you want them to, and can help you answer this question, how do I know when I'm done? All right, so those were 10 questions that we can answer with those two words. It depends. Uh, And actually, Many of the questions that come up in this space when we are visualizing data and communicating with data, many the answer to many of those questions is it depends. And what it depends on is going to change for different scenarios. And I think for me, stepping back and thinking about, you know, for each scenario, uh, who's my audience? How am I presenting to them? What am I presenting, right? Are they coming in with biases that I need to address? Uh, How can I do this in a way that's going to help ensure success? And it's the critical thinking that goes into that process where rather than just do things the way that we've always done them, think about what's going to make you successful in your given situation. And that may look a little different each time. But it's by being thoughtful about that and by thinking through, well, what does it depend on this time in this situation that we will be more successful when it comes to effectively visualizing our data and using it to tell stories? So there were 10 questions. Uh, Let's shift now to some additional questions in the form of reader Q&A. So if you have questions, you can email those to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. And actually, if your question is chosen for my next podcast, I will gift you a free copy of the recently released Audible version of Storytelling with Data. So if you have a question related to visualizing data or communicating with data, be sure to send that to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. Cassia writes, hi, Cole, I have a quick question. Why do you write the titles of the blog in small case letters, as with your book as well? Is there a rationale with this style? This is a great question. Uh, And yeah, it, it is a stylistic thing that I personally like, but there's definitely rationale behind it. Um, For me, it feels less intimidating, more accessible, which is how I'd like my book and the blog to be regarded. And in general, stepping back from that, I'd say that case style, um, you know, do we write caps? Do we write lowercase? This is something that's often overlooked and I think is an important consideration, uh, a decision that we should make intentionally. As a couple of examples, I tend to title my slides uh, using sentence case where just the first word is capitalized versus capitalizing every word in my title. As I feel that this helps to encourage key takeaway titles, uh, which is generally what I advocate, rather than descriptive titles. For example, rather than a slide title that says 2018 actual versus budget, I'd rather have something like actual spend so far in 2018 is 12% over budget. So my audience already knows what to look for by the time they get to the data. 
for access titles, as another example, I'll often use all caps uh, because I like how these visually frame the graph. And I'll usually also upper leftmost justify everything, which puts my y-axis title at the top left and my x-axis title along the bottom left, uh, or if the axis is at the top, at, at the top left. Um, because caps, if we imagine, are all the same height, whereas in mixed case or lowercase, the letters have varying heights. And so for me, the all caps just creates this nice rectangular sort of box that frames the graph in a way that I like aesthetically. Uh, the meta point here, though, is be thoughtful in what you do or don't capitalize. Tabitha asks, just had a quick question about your x-axis for annotated line graph example. I'll, I'll link to this in the notes. Uh, I have the book, but it doesn't show how you create the x-axis with the extended tick marks. I know it must be simple, but I can't figure out a simple way to do it. Do you use text boxes? Uh, and this is uh, funny or uh, coincidental, I should say, because this question has been coming up a ton of times for me lately. And I actually should put a blog post together that illustrates this. I have that on my to-do list. Um, but what Tabitha is describing here uh, is where there's an axis that has labels and then it has super category as well. So I'll often do this with dates, for example, along the x-axis where it'll have month and then below that it'll have the year. And the way to do this uh, in Excel has always seemed to me more cumbersome than it needs to be, which is you first must create the graph just with the month. Uh, so if you imagine in your Excel, you'd have a column for months, January, February, March, April, and so on. And so to create the graph, I'd select that along with my data. But then once I've created the graph, then I can go in and say, select data source. And now if I go to my x-axis labels, uh, if I have a column to the left of month, that also has the year written just for each uh, January. I can now extend the what's I can now extend what's being highlighted and select both the year and the month. And what that does in Excel is it then applies some really nice formatting where it uh, carries the tick lines down a little bit further so that you guess, get a nice super categorization with the years and then have your finer categorization be the months. Uh, it's a way uh, to take out what's often redundant labeling when we have you know January 2016, February 2016, and so forth, where we can pull out the year into a super category. Uh, another Excel question here. Paola says... I really enjoyed and learned a lot from the book that will help me as I start my career. Can you point me to some tutorials, websites, or templates that can help me become better at creating Excel charts? Uh, so I'll say, definitely refer you to my blog, storytellingwithdata.com. Uh, I do most of my work in Excel and always try to post the Excel files with any of the makeovers. Uh, so if you're ever wanting to click around and, and try to figure out how something was done, uh, that can be a good place to start. Uh, I also have some fully annotated posts that are like, then you click here, and then you click here, and then you click here, which would be the most awful <laughs> training ever. Uh, but works okay in a self-guided uh, function. And I'll be sure to link to those. Um, in terms of some other Excel resources, I'd say check out Anne Emery's blog, uh, Peltier Tech is John Peltier's site, uh, and Chandu. Uh, all of these have tutorials and a lot of good content on how to do things in Excel. Um, so I'll be sure to link to those in the show notes as well. 
So big thanks to those who have submitted questions. Uh, and if you have a question, email askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. And like I said, now is the time to submit questions if you have them, because those that get chosen uh, to be answered in the next podcast will receive a coupon or a, a code for a free audible of Storytelling with Data. Before we wrap, a couple of exciting updates. Uh, first one I just mentioned, but the audiobook Storytelling with Data, a data visualization guide for business professionals, was just released last week and is available for sale on the Audible site as well as Amazon. You might be thinking, a book on data visualization that's audio? How does that work? And this actually was a ton of fun. Um, and I describe the graphs. Uh, there's also a PDF that comes along with your purchase where you can see all of the graphs um, that you can refer to when you need to. But if you like auto audiobooks, uh, be sure to check that out. I've also added a Seattle public workshop date on April 10th. Uh, this is 2018. Uh, details and registration can be found at Storytelling with Data dot com slash public hyphen workshops there are also upcoming sessions in london zurich and san francisco the storytelling with data challenge this month will be announced thursday the 9th of february 2018 and will run through the 13th of february and this is a great opportunity to practice flexing your data visualization skills and there's some fun partnerships this time uh, and a topic uh, that'll be uh, i hope of interest and the recap post will be published on the 15th of february and that's 2018. be sure to check these out follow at story with data on twitter and instagram stay tuned for next time where I'll discuss the beauty of constraints. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, thanks as always for your ongoing support of everything we're doing here at Storytelling with Data.